Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. If you're here for the first time or one of your first times, we appreciate you coming. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a new place. If you're joining us online, thanks for doing that. And just uh, to add to that little asking you to consider joining the live stream team, my commitment to you is if you work the camera, I will get you a good workout. I will move across the stage <laughs> so you get some, get some exercise in. That's my commitment to you. So I grew up in a home of three boys. Um, my dad would come home from work, and uh, he would have a drink with my mom, and that was fine. But if he would ask for a second drink, us as three boys, yeah, that didn't go well. Because the alcohol would begin to affect him, and my dad was a mean drunk. And so as boys, we would kind of want to stay away out of his purview that he might, but then we could get in trouble for being distant. So if we got too close and we didn't know where the second drink was going to land. You know, just as my dad made a choice on that second drink, we have a choice to follow God or not. The Bible calls that choice to rebel against God, to do our own thing, calls it sin. We know, but God, no, I'm going to call my own shot. I'm going to do my own thing. You go your way. Bible calls that sin. What is it we need to know about sin? I want us to think about that today. Just as my dad didn't fully understand the implication of his secondary, I would say we don't fully understand. So with that in mind, would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21? We're going to go through this uh, chapter wrestling with this question. What should we remember about sin? What should we remember about sin? If you haven't been with us, we are nearing the conclusion. I don't know. We've been in the books of First and Second Samuel for nine months-ish. Uh, we've seen Israel transition from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. They were looking for security. They put that security in an earthly king. God said, that's a bad idea. They kept pushing for it. And God said, okay, I'll give you your king. And the first king's name was Saul. He didn't do well at all. So God, uh, he didn't follow God. And God moved on from him to David. David did well for the most part. But there's one area. Um, he was told long before one in the promised land, the king was not to multiply wives, and he kept adding wives, kept adding wives. And one day he took a woman who was married, and she uh, laid with him, and she became pregnant. The trouble was the husband was away at war, so David had a quandary on his hands. I'll spare you the details. He ended up having that guy murdered. There was all kind of fallout from that. God said, I'm still with you, but there's going to be consequence to that. And we've read through that these last weeks. There was a coup and there was a murder in his family. There was a rape and there was even a succession from Israel. And, and so we're to the end of that. Chapters 21 through 24 are not in chronological order. The, the narrator just tacks them on, I think, to give us a full under, understanding of David's kingship, of David's leadership. With that in mind, let me start. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, There was a famine in the days of David for three years. So sometime during David's reign, there was a famine, three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So this is the consequence from something before David became king. Saul was king. We'll talk about the Gibeonites in a second, but they, they were a minority people. And he came after him, tried to wipe him out. And now Israel is feeling the consequence of that sin. What do we know about the Gibeonites? Verse 2, 
So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Remember the story when Joshua was tasked to come into the promised land? God told him, you dispossess, you get rid of the people who were in the land. Their sin has grown to a point they're incurring my judgment. Well, the Gibeonites heard this about this Israeli army, so they pulled off a roost. They, they put on tattered clothes, and they had dry, crusty bread, and they came to Joshua and said, man, we have come from a land far, far, far away, and look at our dirty clothes, and look at our bread, and, and we would just like to make a treaty with you. We will be your servants. We will cut your wood, and we will chop your water if you agree not to kill us, and, and, and you will protect us. And Joshua said, okay. He didn't check it out. Well, later he found out they were people of the land, but he had given his word. And he had promised before God that they would serve Israel, but he would protect them. So that's the way it was. Saul, remember, Saul was disconnected from God at some point. He decided a minority people, defenseless, I'll wipe them out. You've heard of genocides? How far do they go back? They go back at least as far. Unprovoked, We'll just get rid of these people. Now Israel is feeling the consequence of that. So verse 3, Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The Gibeonites think God is not trustworthy because his people didn't keep his covenant. David said, I want you to bless the name of God. What do I need to do to make this right? David's concerned for the reputation of God. Verse 4, the Gibeonites are both shrewd and understated. Here's what they say. Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house. We're not looking for a monetary. We're not looking for money here. So what are you looking for? Well, then they hint at it. Nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. We believe in capital punishment, David, but we don't have the authority to do that. And he, David, said, I will do for you whatever you say. Okay, David's left himself open, so here's what they say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to exterminate us from re remaining with the borders of Israel. That's what Israel wanted to do. He, uh, Saul wanted to do. He wanted to wipe him out. He killed a bunch of us to do it. Let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So David agrees. So verses 7 to 9. David goes about his business, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between David and Saul's son Jonathan. David had made a covenant with Jonathan, his friend, I won't hurt any of your descendants. So what does he do? Verse 2. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, Omni and Mephibosheth, so two sons of Saul, whom she had borne to Saul. So there's two. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai. The Melethite. So there's five grandsons. So there's your seven. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death. Note this. In the first day of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. So you're going to say to me, Andy, why do Saul's two sons... And five grandsons suffer for his decision. 
Now, fortunately, I went to seminary for three years and I studied, and I can tell you the answer to that is, I don't know. Aren't you glad I went to seminary? I don't know. Here's what I do know, though. There's fallout from sin. And your actions just don't affect you. They affect others. And that's particularly true when you're talking about leaders. Saul was the leader of a nation. The nation is feeling the consequence of his choice. For those of you who don't know, I need to make this confession. We're a family of four, my wife and I and two sons. We're a family of geeks. You know what we trade often for Christmas presents? Books. We trade books. So our younger son is back there on the soundboard. And you know what he got everybody for Christmas this Christmas? He got us books. Books. Like books on Jimmy Carter and books on Harry Truman. And those books are being passed around our family. So I have read two books on Truman in the last. Truman became president very suddenly. Franklin Roosevelt died. And he gets thrust into some negotiations, which included Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin about the fate of a whole bunch of people in Europe. And he didn't know what he was stepping into, and there was this dicker, and there was the position of the Russian army, and this and that. And, and they decided to divide up the land they did. And if you happen to be in Poland, or Czechoslovakia, or Hungary, or Yugoslavia, bummer. For the next 45 years-ish, you lived in the Iron Curtain. Of a decision... Three later leaders made years ago. My point. <laughs> decisions affect innocent people. People who are not, don't deserve to suffer, do. Because of decisions and choices of others. The wall fell in 1989. In 1990, my wife was on a mission trip in Germany. Flew into West Germany, went over to East Germany. She said, Andy, the difference couldn't have been more stark. If you happen to be born in West Germany or East Germany, it had 45 tough years. Your choices to follow God or not, my choices to follow God or not, they just don't affect us. They affect people around us. They affect people we love. Why is that? I, I, don't, I, I don't know, but I know the Bible is consistent about that. Verse 10, the seven men have been hung. Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds nor the sky of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. She's not going to let these dead bodies just be torn apart by birds and animals. David gets word of what she's doing. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zila, in the grave of Kish, his father, 
Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after God, that, God was moved by the prayer for the land. He relents. David agrees to give these seven men a decent burial. Saul acted against a defenseless people. We've talked about this before. God cares about the vulnerable, the defenseless. That's a violation of God. My question is, why, why didn't the, the, the judgment fall on Saul right then? I have no doubt he got judged in, in eternity, but, but why does he go to the grave thinking he got, got away with it? Yeah, I don't know. But there's a lot of leaders who create a lot of atrocities that seem to get away with it in this world. But we trust that a just God will bring them to justice. Why do others who seem to have nothing with the decision have to suffer him? I don't know. But what I do know is we have no control over the fallout of our sin. The choices we make go everywhere. So here's what I'm asking. What should we remember about sin? Here's what I'd say. We have no idea what kind of fallout will result from sin. We have no idea what kind of fallout will result from our sin, our choices. In 2013, Spain decided to unveil their state-of-the-art submarine, the S-81 Isaac Peril. But apparently in the calculations, um, somebody had moved a decimal point a place or two. Those of you who say math doesn't matter. Somebody moved a point decimal place or two. And the, the submarine, well, it was 75 to 100 tons too heavy. Do you know what happened when they put that in the water? It went right down. I'm not, maybe you were in the Coast Guard. That's bad for a subject. You just go to the bottom, isn't it? That's a bad thing. So the Spanish had to pull out their state-of-the-art submarine redo some calculations, lengthen it by 75 to 100 feet. It took eight more years to get that Hummer ready to launch. What's my point? A little error in math, just a, just a decimal point or two. It gets multiplied over calculations, and a $680 million sub, it ain't ready to go. It's going to need another eight years. Before we, because why? Because there's no such thing as a little sin. There's a ripple effect to the choices we make. Well, at this point, this is kind of a depressing message. There's good news. Jesus Christ came to take away both the penalty and the power of sin. He lived the life we were supposed to live in complete submission to the Father. He died on the cross and rose again that we could be forgiven for our sin and, yes, yeah, spend eternity with God, but live differently in this life. There's a, there's a power of sin that draws us to say, we can do it on our own. We'll do it. And, and Jesus changes our heart. And he says, no, I, I understand. Fullness of life is lived in submission to God. Paul came to understand that. He was one who spent his life, early years, persecuting Christians, imprisoning them, executing them. He met Jesus on the road. Had a radical change. And this is what Paul said he's learned in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Me, the one who lives, I've been crucified, just like Christ was on the cross. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's our hope, Christ living in us. In the life which we now live in the flesh, it's not on our own. We're not calling our own shot. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the hope in this. Jesus 
with his death and resurrection has canceled the penalty of sin, the eternal separation of God, but the power of sin that it controls us. And we keep making these decisions over and over again. As we go back to our passage, we, we have a couple, again, excerpts from different points in David's life. I, I want to read those because I think there's something significant for us to know there. Now, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with them. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. And then the Ishbi Benab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword and he intended to kill David. But... Abishai, the son of Zeruah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out with us again in battle, so you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Somebody was after David, and David was weary. And it's Abishai who steps up. Remember, Abishai was one of the three leaders of the army, the brother of Joab. Why, why this? To remind us that David wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't do it on his own. He was surrounded by men in the task that God had for him. Sometime after I got to college, sometime Rambo came out. Remember how many have seen Rambo? Rambo. Sylvester Stallone. Well, if you haven't seen it, man, he is, he is something. And he takes on the whole, and one thing, he takes on the whole North Vietnamese army by himself to free a bunch of prisoners. And we think, oh, David was the original Rambo. No, he wasn't. No, David was living in community to complete his task that God had for him. Second example, verse 18 to 22. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushite struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elanon, the son of Jeroboam, and Bethlehemite killed Goliath the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Then there was war again. There was a man of great stature with six fingers on each hand and six toes, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Notice by the hand of David includes the work of his servants. They're in community doing God's task. My point, we were never designed to live alone in the Christian life. Always in community. That's why we do small groups. If you're not in a small group, I urge you to consider being a part of one. Another place you can connect is serving. We have people who work serving coffee in the morning. They're a team. They get to know one another. They build friendships. We have people who work on a youth, sir, a youth ministry team. They get to know one another. There's friends. There are people who work in children's ministry. It's a place to connect. And sometimes doing something, you connect with people. For you, maybe it's just setting up a coffee or a dinner to begin to build community, to begin trust in relationships. You know, we talked about defeating sin. God has called us, has given us, taken away both the penalty and power of sin. I would suggest defeating the power of sin is best done when we're living in community, when we're transparent, this is what is going on in our lives. This week I read a review from the University of the Pacific about what happened at Chernobyl. Two electrical engineers. Where, do we have any, we have an electrical engineer here. Do we have any more electrical engineers? Any more? 
No? Okay. Well, you can, this shows you can trust chemical engineers, but don't trust electrical engineers. That's the lesson of this thing. Did you get that name? Did you get that? Okay. These two electrical engineers decide they're going to run an experiment on the reactor. They're going to allow it to free will. I don't understand everything I read. They begin to cut power. But here's what I too understand. Six times, six times, the computer came up, warning, stop, go no farther. And you know what they did? They override, overrode the warning. And then they got to a point of no return. And lives were wrecked. And a huge area of land is uninhabitable to hundreds of years. Because these guys wouldn't listen. Do you understand the purpose of this account in the Bible? It's a warning. If you're fooling within, stop. Go no farther. Because we like Chernobyl, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. The fallout of our sin. On one hand, we don't know. Here's where my illustration with Chernobyl breaks down. Once that Hummer got going, there was no stopping it. There was no stopping it. They got it in capsulized in cement and just though we were foolish, though we rebelled against God, every one of us, God didn't leave us alone. He gave us one who can put a stop to it. His name is Jesus. He said, I came to take both the penalty and the power of sin. Here's my plea as we look at this, that we would embrace this Jesus, that we would take hold of what he offers, that we wouldn't have to live the penalty or live under the power of sin because we know we have no idea where the fallout of sin will take us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're sobered, challenged by your word, grateful that you haven't left us on, and, and, on our own, and, and we admit we've taken things into our own hand. And, and some of us are living the consequences of that right now. But Father, it's, it's never too late with you. It's never too late to re-engage with the one who said, I've taken the penalty, I've taken the power of sin. And to join Paul in saying, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Lord, will we be that people that take hold of you? I pray in Christ's name. Amen.